Everybody. Welcome to the December 9th, 2016 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the 75th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor and its Colorado ties. Following the attack, Colorado Governor Ralph Carr was the only politician to resist President Roosevelt's executive order to place Japanese Americans in internment camps and strip them of their civil rights. Patty Cahoon from Westward, do enough Coloradans know about Ralph Carr's legacy? No, they don't. And as thanks for what he did, he did not get reelected. But Every Coloradan should go down to where Camp Amachi was outside Granada. It is stunning to just see this windswept plain where these Californians, many of them citizens, were all brought. They'd never been to Colorado before where they were put. And what they did there, the farms, the businesses they started, really incredible. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. 75 years since one of the, really one of the biggest events in the 20th century. What are your thoughts? Well, in the case that upheld it, uh, Korematsu versus United States has never been overruled and lays around like a smoking gun waiting for the next irresponsible, demagogic, racist president uh, to follow in FDR's footsteps and, uh, and use it. But Governor Carr shows that doing the right thing um, may be very unpopular at the time you do it, but subsequent generations may appreciate uh, a strong stand for righteousness. Eric Sondman, political analyst, uh, what stood out to you on this uh, solemn 75th anniversary? Yeah, ditto to Patty, ditto to David. Uh, Ralph Carr has certainly earned a place among the esteemed governors in Colorado history, not in the current moment in which he lived, but uh, in, 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 upon reflection and with historical times. David was veiled in his reference, but uh, you know there are distant, hopefully remaining very distant, echoes of... Um, these kinds of threats these days, and we hope they stay as uh, nothing but uh, but echoes in our head. Right into the panel, Penfield Tate, uh, attorney with QTAC Rock, also a longtime state lawmaker. Uh, what do you think about that? The legacy that we think was long ago, 75 years, there's no way the United States could ever do something like that. The, 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 the echoes sound a little bit differently nowadays. Uh, the echoes sound hauntingly familiar. Uh, what is the saying? A prophet is not always acknowledged in their time. Mm -hmm. and, and Ralph Carr was that. Um, he was visionary. He was forward-looking. And, and I agree with what the panelists have said. He resisted the racist, xenophobic push to, to, to treat, um, in many cases, American citizens in this fashion because he just thought it was fundamentally wrong. And that's what we're sometimes missing so much in politics this day, someone with a moral compass who will do what is just the right thing to do, uh, consistent with the, the values upon which is, this country was founded. In an attempt to shift the results of the presidential election, two Colorado presidential electors have filed a federal lawsuit challenging Colorado state law that prevents them from switching political allegiances following their initial vote. Secretary of State Wayne Williams, who was named as the defendant in the case, responded by calling the plaintiff's attempt arrogant and going against the will of Coloradans, violating Colorado law. Patty, if any state's going to have some, I guess what we call them faithless electors, I guess it would start here in Colorado. It's been our theme for 2016. What do you think? Well, let's remember the Coloradans who walked out at the Republican convention this, this summer. This is, besides the fact that Wayne Williams, who 
is more forceful in his response to these people than we've ever heard. I mean, it, he called them odious. It's just, it's really compelling. Obviously, his press person is doing a good job of inspiring him to use the language correctly. You know, if people don't like the Electoral College, and a lot of them don't like the system, then get rid of the system. But don't break, don't try to change the system, which by um, and fight Colorado law on this. Interesting that Polly Baca is leading the charge on this former state lawmaker who certainly knows what Colorado's laws are. Um, it's a very quixotic effort. It obviously is not going to make the change, but it's fun to be back on the headlines and international headlines with a secretary of state who uses very interesting language. <laughs> David, you're one of our uh, two esteemed lawyers at the table. I'm assuming this is a legal long shot. Am I right? I think it's up in the air. That we have a we have the Electoral College, and then we have this Colorado statute, which says if electors don't vote the way the popular vote goes in Colorado, then there's a, a punishment for them. And there will be, I think, a hearing in federal district court on Monday about the, the constitutionality of that Colorado statute. But regardless of whether that statute is upheld or not, the electors are free. They may get punished. You know, Polly Baca could be thrown in prison, for all we know, uh, after she votes. But under our Constitution, there is nothing that can be done to stop electors from voting their conscience. That is what the Constitution says. It's the system created. The Electoral College is a deliberative body. And they can vote however they choose to vote. And I think that's an important backstop in, in our system. I don't think it's going to change the, the result this time, but the, the fact is the electors are free and nothing, uh, you can punish them after, but you can't stop them from exercising their freedom when they cast that vote. Eric, do you think there's a chance this catches on, even, again, not to suddenly change the election, but that there uh, other faithless electors might be more than just a couple, maybe a large handful. Do you think this catches on or is this simply stuck right here in Colorado? I think that's what they intended in Colorado. They wanted to light a fire to see if it could catch on. There was one Trump elector who published an op-ed recently in the New York Times out of Texas who was saying he will not vote for Trump. Now I think I heard that he has resigned and some other elector who will vote for Trump has stepped into his place. If this was 2000 with Bush v. Gore which, let's not forget, that Electoral College vote was 271 to 267 after Florida went to Bush. Then this becomes, from a practical matter, I will let Penn and, and David do the law here as our quote esteemed attorneys. Um, <laughs> but uh, as a practical matter, you know, Trump has 306 electoral votes. He can lose 36 and still become president. He just can't lose 37. Um, so I think this is grasping at straws, and let's also not forget that the two Colorado electors are Democratic electors since Hillary Clinton carried the state. Uh, Democratic electors can be as faithless as they want. If anything is going to change here, it would require 37 Republican Trump electors from states that Donald Trump carried to be faithless. I happen to believe in the Electoral College. I think it serves the country well and has over time, though I do think there should be, as David points out, some degree of free agency here, which is the original tent intent of it. If not, just why even have a meet? Just record the computer votes, nine for Colorado in this column, X number from California in this column, and so on. So. Um, you know, I do think that they should have some legal right to end up exercise independent judgment. Penn, why do you think it's 
starts here in Colorado so often. I mean, we're not exactly a hotbed of liberalism or conservatism. We're, uh, I'm not sure we had a strong rebellious streak as a state, but somehow it always comes out of Colorado. You know, I think it's a couple things. Number one, if you look at the entire election cycle, in many ways, Colorado was out of step with the rest of the country. In Colorado, Sanders won the Democratic nomination and Cruz won the Republican nomination. So one could argue that Coloradans didn't really want either of the candidates who ended up in the, in the, in the finals because they'd picked other candidates. Second, um, I think particularly now with the, 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 the space we're going into with a Trump presidency coming about, I think it's important we're careful about the words we use and how we use them. I, I, I've heard the term faithless electors, and that bothers me. I know a number of them refer to themselves as Hamilton electors because they talk about the original intent of the Electoral College. Um, I think, you know, and I took a look at the 12th Amendment, there's not a whole lot of case law, but this is going to be an interesting lawsuit because it is not clear, as David said, that a state can compel an elector to vote a particular way because the elector's office and authorization is grounded in the U.S. Constitution. And some would argue there is a bit of free agency there and that the college was intended as a backstop to prevent uh, the will of the, the general public, if we ever went berserk, from doing something crazy. And some would argue that that's where they feel we are now. So this is going to be an interesting process. I don't think I agree with Eric. I don't think that Donald Trump is going to lose 36 elector or 37 electors in this process. But I think because this lawsuit is in Colorado and in other places, I think it's an important principle that it get litigated and dealt with in some fashion because there is the likelihood that it will recur at some point in our history or in our future. Federal transportation officials announced, uh, announced this week that they will launch an investigation into the construction of the controversial expansion of I-70. A civil rights complaint has been filed citing adverse impacts on health, economics, and quality of life of the surrounding neighbors. According to the Colorado Department of Transportation, the project planning will begin and continue, and work is set to begin in 2018. Uh, David, how big of a deal is this? I, I think not, although we'll see what the, the feds come up with in their investigation. Uh, I think it is accurate to say that when you do major highway expansions within a developed urban area like here, uh, it does have adverse impacts on health, economics, and quality of life of the surrounding neighbors. That's true everywhere. Now, and they're doing this expansion in the place where any rational transportation manager would say an expansion is needed. So do you have a civil rights violation because it's happening there when it's these kind of impacts happen everywhere this is done i'm i'm skeptical that that'll be proven but if the feds investigate and find out that secretly they were saying well it'd be really smarter to do the expansion out you know by kiowa uh but we're going to do it here because uh, we can uh harm uh people based on their race then that would uh we'll, we'll find out if that was the motive or not Eric, do you think CDOT's in for a fight, especially how they've gone about this process so far? Well, yes, they're in for a fight, but it's probably not an unanticipated fight. I mean, the, the, the notion that a lawsuit got filed over a major infrastructure project is not exactly a top of the, top of the breaking news kind of stories. Lawsuits are filed over everything. I take this into a more macro sense with Donald Trump, President-elect Trump, getting ready to launch at least by most reports, a major thrust to improve this country's infrastructure. 
And one of the real problems he will face, as anyone faces, is just the regulatory notion and the, litig the, the, the amount of litigation that accompanies any attempt to really build anything in this country. I'm not suggesting that the residents of that, those neighborhoods don't have some valid concerns. But there's also been substantial mitigation that has taken place. We used to have a phrase of NIMBY, you know, not in my backyard. There's a new phrase that I've been attracted to. It's called BANANA. Stands the acronym is build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. Uh, <laughs> and I think there are some interests out there. I'm not accusing the Swansea uh, uh, Globeville interests necessarily being in, those, in that camp. But we see around the country, whether it's around pipelines or anything else, there are banana interests who just do not want to build or improve this country's infrastructure if it has any adverse effect at all. And it's always going to have some adverse effect on someone. Penn, the neighborhoods in question have been predominantly Latino for a long time. Uh, they've been poor for generations. Uh, is there something special about this particular expansion in those neighborhoods and really the history that those uh, those neighborhoods have been treated? Because it's not exactly the, the first expansion of I-70 there didn't go their way either. So is there something to the particular history in that neighborhood that will uh, affect this case? Um, you know, I don't know. And let me start by disclosing that my law firm is the, finan the, the, the firm that does the financings for CDOT and will do the financing on this project. Um, and I, I, I just have to answer, I don't know. It, what is clear is CDOT has spent seven, eight, nine years um, researching this issue, meeting with the neighborhoods. I know the current plan is not necessarily what was originally proposed in part, to address the concerns of some of the neighborhoods. And I know the city has stepped up and put some enhancements in this project to try to address the neighborhood concerns. But, in but you know, we also know the neighborhood has the right to say, hey, we, we feel aggrieved. We're going to raise an issue. And so that's why the feds are coming in to take a look at it. So we'll see what happens. But there's been considerable study here. Eric is right about that. We'll, we'll see how it shakes out. Patty, it seems CDOT did um, some work to get out ahead of the project, but not a whole lot in the eyes of the neighborhood. And little issues have come up that it's trying to chip away at that. You have a whole issue with City Park, the golf course, now needing to be completely changed over because of flood uh, planning. You have this lawsuit. Do you think there's enough momentum building up from all these smaller issues that would slow anything down with this expansion? Well, it already is slowed down. The, the EIS, the Environmental Impact Statement, was supposed to be released. It was going to be finalized this summer. It was pushed back. Should be coming soon, but it hasn't. CDOT had postponed that. You've got some momentum building with the ditch, the ditch people who don't want to have, uh, they don't want I-70 there at all. Uh, you know, the compromise was the little ditch in the overlay park. Uh, and it seems to be getting some momentum. One of the issues, of course, is that that highway went through this area that was always a poor area. It started out Eastern European immigrants. It's gone through a lot of different groups. When the highway went through, I think it was probably still largely poor white uh, in that era. But what people seem to miss is if that highway is rerouted, and let's face it, Commerce City doesn't want it either, so I think Kiowa might be the solution. Um, <laughs> That doesn't mean that Globeville and Illyria Swansea will be reunited. What it means probably is the developers that are building those monstrosities in Rhino will just move over and do the same thing there. 
Arguments over the death penalty have reemerged in Arapahoe County this week. District Attorney George Brockler announced last Friday that he'll seat the death penalty in the case of Brandon Johnson, who was accused of killing his son and sexually assaulting his ex-girlfriend in February. The ACLU quickly responded, stating, not only is this a waste of money, but Brockler will be adding yet another black man from the 18th Judicial District to the row. Of course, referring to death row. Uh, Eric, uh, George Brockler just headed up one of the biggest death penalty cases we've seen, uh, and it did not uh, certainly go his way in regards to getting the death penalty. Uh, is it uh, the right use in this scenario? It is certainly in his toolbox, and as an elected prosecutor out there, he is entitled to seek the death penalty. I think it is misguided. I happen to believe that Colorado is probably prescribed its last death sentence. If you could not get it on James Holmes, and then in the case of that bar on South Colorado Boulevard, uh, Pharaoh's Bar, I forget the name of the assailant, where they tried it in Denver and couldn't get it. I do not know in what circumstances you can get it. There's no doubt this was a heinous crime. But to my thinking, if there's an advantage to, death, to keeping the death penalty on the books these days, it's as an inducement to get a plea, to get a plea to life without parole, you know, the toughest possible standard there. The defense in this case has already made clear they would plead to life without parole. If what George Brockler wanted was leverage, he already has the leverage, he has that plea. By all accounts, George Brockler is getting ready to run for the Republican nomination for governor, and he is probably a very serious candidate in that Republican contest. I would think, you know, to expend the resources he's getting ready to expend on another death penalty prosecution, having lost that pursuit in the James Holmes case, I would think it would be difficult for him to then go 0 for 2 on death penalty cases. And my prediction is if he proceeds down this road, he will be 0 for 2. Penn, you have a unique perspective. You've been a lawmaker tackling issues just like the death penalty and capital punishment in Colorado. You're a lawyer, so you know the different issues regarding the case. When you look at the situation, what do you think of Brockler's decision? Uh, clearly, he, it's his prerogative, and the death penalty is a tool in the toolbox, as Eric said. Uh, the reality is, is it's a tool that probably makes no sense to try to deploy in Colorado anymore. Uh, during my time in the legislature, just because of how the political forces work, we were never able to, to successfully repeal the death penalty, even though we knew jury after jury after jury would not choose the death penalty. Uh, and there, you know, there's a, abundant research that deals with whether there's some sort of racial bias in terms of whether, when it's sought, when it's uh, in levied, how jurors perceive it. So George Brockler's got all of that working against him also. But fundamentally, I agree with Eric uh, on two points. Number one, even if you don't repeal it, the instance of seeking it should be very, very limited because its primary value is the same value in this case where the defendant and his counsel said, we'll plead out and accept life imprisonment without a possibility of parole and be done with it. Um, and, and that probably makes sense given, number two, the James Holm case. If you couldn't get a jury to invoke the death penalty in that district, in that case, I, I'm not convinced as awful as this crime was, and all of these death penalty cases are awful crimes, I'm not convinced you can get a jury to do it now. And at some point, his motives are going to start to be questioned, whether it's a political stunt, you know, to prepare for the gubernatorial race, or whether it's, it's something well-reasoned and, and well-considered. Patty, what do you think? Was the 2018 Republican gubernatorial primary on Brockler's mind here? 
Probably, because you cannot imagine why otherwise he wouldn't just take this plea. It was a heinous crime, but the man was so clearly, it looks like clearly out of his mind. Having him locked up for the rest of his life would be a good solution for society. Save us money, save us time, save the horrors of having to go through that trial. The argument that it's racist, since Holmes was a white guy, upper-class white guy, that argument doesn't hold so well, except that it is fascinating that the guys are all on death row, all went to the same high school, and so did, the, so did he. Wow. That, I did not know that. It's, a, um, it's kind of a scary thought there. Uh, David, your thoughts on this move? Well, the idea that the if you're going to have use the death penalty as leverage for a plea, uh, that's only credible leverage when prosecutors are sometimes willing to seek it. And part of the reason I think the defendant was willing to take that life plea uh, was because uh, District Attorney Brockler had credibility on the death penalty and worked very hard on the Holmes case, and I think came within, came up to 11 to 1. He won every, won every uh, vote except the, the very final one, and that, you know, that, that's the choice of the jury. But the fact is it is on the books. Uh, the majority of Coloradans believe it is appropriate punishment for the most heinous crimes. And the ACLU's reprehensible race baiting is is just out of bounds politically. Uh, George Brockler is not a racist. He worked as hard as he could to have upper-class white James Holmes executed. And this this kind of racist demagoguery on behalf of the, by the ACLU is one of the reasons I no longer belong to that organization after having been part of it for 30 years. As I say, I remember you being a part of that for a long yeah. time. That's a significant point. Then we're going to get to our favorite part of the show this crazy week. I know we have, uh, we'll spend a little bit more time and say something nice. So, uh, Patty, as always, please start us off with your disgrace of the week. Well, we have a new term that has really come to the forefront at the end of 2016, which is the fake news. And it's true, the use of fake news and really, really fake news in the last election was horrible. But when someone reports that a TV anchor is leaving, that doesn't mean it's fake news, and Channel 9 and Adele Arakawa's response to that was way over the top. Her first commentary, it was, uh, it was straight fire right there. David. Harry Reid, long overdue to be leaving. You can have whatever view of his you know, policy votes, but when he was majority leader of the Senate, he turned the Senate into a dysfunctional institution that could not pa couldn't pass budgets. He destroyed the comedy and inter-party, inter-individual inter, uh, respect that had characterized that institution for a long time. He's probably the most destructive majority leader of the Senate, for within the Senate itself uh, in history. And, of course, he also told those brazen lies on the floor of the Senate where he'd be free from libel prosecutions uh, that Mitt Romney paid no taxes, knowing they were a flagrant lie, and then laughed about how he got away with it afterwards. Eric. Closer to home. RTD, that A-line train, which I uh, have commented should maybe be the D-minus line or something like that, uh, was down again eight hours yesterday. They thought it might be weather-related. Uh, it snows in Colorado. It gets cold in Colorado. You need to build the rails so that it can accommodate uh, cold and icy weather. Um, they need to get this together. I know they have uh, some kind of dispensation from the federal government through February to get it together so they don't need the crossing guards at all these crossings, but uh, it has become an embarrassment for RTD. More than a PR embarrassment, it is a major inconvenience for people relying on it to get around town or to DIA. Mm -hmm. Penn. 
the level of discourse in this country is becoming more and more discouraging. To watch what happened to the African-American woman in Aurora who was subject to racial epithets and some of the other behavior, the graffiti on public buildings, um, the sense that people feel entitled. It's one thing to have freedom of expression and belief, but when you begin defacing property and threatening other people because of their race, religion, ethnicity, color, that's disturbing. And it appears that some of the bounds that hold organized society together are beginning to fray in our, in our country, in our community, and that's not good. It won't take us anyplace good. Let's try to go someplace good with this one. Say something nice about somebody. Patty, start us off. Uh, well, last week, this week, we lost a true journalist, someone who never wrote fake news, who was always a complete pro. Peter Blake covered the State House for so long for the Rocky Mountain News, then after the news folded, continued to report, really level-headed, smart, did in-depth investigation, just a really, really good guy. I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, and respected from both sides of the aisle. You heard people talk after the announcement of his death. You heard people from both sides saying he respected his style. David. A, a really exemplary guy, morally and, and, and as a journalist, and uh, wrote for Complete Colorado in, in his latter years, but was, was always a, a good example for, for everyone in every possible way. Mm -hmm. And certainly, I, mean, I remember him writing for the Rocky Mountain News and uh, Fred Brown being for the Post. You, had a, uh, you still had a lot of information from Capitol Hill coming in uh, uh, from those reporters. And really, it, it's, you can go through the scripts of our many years here at this table. He, his reporting is a part of it. Eric. Well, I really want to make my say something nice what Penn just said on the last round in terms of the level of discourse in this country and, and uh, what has been given license seemingly now. And that was well said. But uh, I will echo it with regard to Peter Blake, but I want to bring a couple other names into it. It's been a tough week. I mean, mm -hmm. Senator John Glenn nationally, what an American hero, a true American original. In Colorado, there was Rashawn Salam, mm -hmm. very sad case. Peter Blake and, and the woman that I was most uh, bothered by her sudden passing, Sheila Bogdanowitz, the longtime head of the Rose Community Foundation, uh, a, a farsight, far, far generous of spirit, philanthropist, a real community leader, died suddenly last weekend. Uh, and that is a major loss for, for Denver and for the state. Mm -hmm. Another one you heard from a lot of people from uh, around the community noting that loss. Penn. Uh, quickly, ditto everything everybody else said, but thank you, Colorado, for record-setting um, day for Colorado Gives. Um, thank you to the Colorado Industrial Areas Foundations for, for beginning to mobilize community-based groups. And thank you, Mayor Steve Hogan were speaking about the things that were taking place in Aurora and holding a press conference and saying Aurora is not a city that's going to tolerate or permit or allow hatred and bigotry and offensive treatment towards its citizens. Thank you. He didn't have to do it, but he did, and that should be acknowledged. That is all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check out Colorado Inside Out and its podcast feed on iTunes and now on Google. And, of course, you can check out all the topics on our Facebook and Twitter feeds. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks very much, thanks very much for watching. Good night.